Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Jessica Helfand. Jessica is internationally acclaimed in area of work as a designer, writer and educator. With William Drentel, she co-founded the Winterhouse Institute and with Michael Beirut, Design Observer. She has written for many publications, including the Los Angeles Times Book Review, Aperture and The New Republic. She is the author of numerous books on design and cultural criticism, including her critically acclaimed Scrapbooks in American History, which was named Best Visual Book by The New York Times. Her most recent publications include Design, The Invention of Desire, Culture is Not Always Popular, 15 Years of Design Observer, and Face, A Visual Odyssey. Jessica, welcome. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you. I wish we were doing it in person, but this will have to do. It's great to be spending this hour with you. I wanted to start by asking you a bit about you and how you would describe what it is you do. Well, I'm old, so that's going to be a, how much time do you have? No, I, um, what do I do? Well, I was trained originally as a graphic designer, but I don't practice graphic design anymore. Uh, I really, my practice has become more of a sort of fine art, visual art practice. Uh, but for many years, I always did three things. I had a, a teaching life, I had a writing life, and I had a studio life. And I think they've ebbed and flowed as time has gone on, but uh, they're all capable of, of serial reinvention, I found. So now I'm no longer teaching full-time, I'm teaching part-time. It permits me to give lectures all over the world on Zoom, uh, which is enjoyable. I write books uh, based on subjects that come to me and are topics that I feel warrant further exploration than what I'm able to find in the world. So that they're not, as a body of work, they tend to be on disparate subjects, but I think cumulatively they have been indicative of my curiosity about odd things. And then the studio practice also has continued to change. So I had a practice with my husband uh, who died in 2013. And after he died, I shut our studio down, continued to run Design Observer with Michael Beirut, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, which we began in 2003. That has changed over time. And now I, I spend my time running Design Observer and, and painting. So for the past 10 years, I've been a pretty serious painter. And I think the next 10 the painting will occupy a much even, even bigger space in my life. That's quite a varied career, isn't it? You've taught you've painted, that's the focus of what you're doing now, you've designed, you write. What are the most significant changes that you've seen in the design world over the past uh, five years, for example? You're interacting at so many different levels within the creative world that you must have seen changes. What are the biggest changes you've seen? Well, first of all, you're kind to say varied. Some might say, you know, a little disconnected or, or you know, um, not terribly linear path in, in some ways, because I, I get bored easily, uh, way too easily. And I, I think like an abstract expressionist. I have a very uh, unruly mind. I have a very, um, I think, undisciplined mind, um, which makes it interesting for me, but I think sometimes intolerable for the people that have to work with me. At least that's what I've been told by my very kind assistants over the years that I think like an abstract expressionist. But to answer your question, Sean, um, I, I think there's a revolution coming between two major camps of design. One is the makers, the people who'd identify design by virtue of thinking through making, of learning through thinking through making, of experimentation and entropy and um, improvisation in the studio. 
which really comes about by virtue of a very individual set of conditions. Like you decide you're going to make something and then you set out to make it and the materials aren't what you thought, or there's some cause and effect relationship or some supply and demand relationship that isn't quite what you'd anticipated. It's very humbling, it's very hard, and it's very hard won. And I think anyone who has a studio practice, and that could be any kind of studio, woodworkers, uh, glass blowers, fashion designers, architects, uh, writers, poets, um, people in horticulture. I mean, I think that there can be many different kinds of ways of making. That's one camp. The other camp is business-driven, consensus-driven, team-driven. It's where we get language like co-create. And I, this is probably career suicide for me to say this out loud in public on a podcast, but I think all ideas come from people individually standing up to their own beliefs and their own experience and their own knowledge of what is appropriate in that moment to be producing. The minute you get into best practices and toolkits and teamwork and these large, sustained, galvanized by capitalism endeavors, which is not to say money is a bad thing. I mean, we, we need it. It's important that we have some kind of relationship between the things we're making and what and what the market will bear what many markets will bear, which gets us into all kinds of conversations about ethics and production and upcycling and the kinds of things you and I, Sean, talk about uh, often. But I, I think for me, the reason I sometimes call myself a recovering designer is that that world, I don't feel that I belong in that world anymore. I can't live with myself having to participate in a vocabulary that doesn't come out of the studio that I have spent 30 years of my life working in, teaching in, developing and, and helping uh, shepherd students and young designers. I, I just, I think there's got to be another way. And I think there's going to be a showdown. I do. That's quite interesting because one would then, and one should never assume, but I'll, uh, I'll say one would then assume that the creative endeavors that we pursue have changed because of what's happening around us. So, you know, we've got environmental concerns and we've got um, changes to kind of the way we work. We've got quality of work, quantity of work. And from what you are saying, one would think that, you know, if you start on your own and you're able to explore that creativity and then expand the creativity, we would be better for it. Yes. And I think your question also gets to education, how we educate people to think about practice. What is practice? Maybe practice is more language-based and we need to be teaching different kinds of communication skills. Maybe practice is about an individuality of belief which comes out of a kind of ethical mandate that has yet to reveal itself pedagogically across most schools. But I think, you know, I speak, I'm speaking now as a mother, as someone who's raised two children and who taught for 30 years. I think the best outcome is that you help steward a generation of people who recognize the consequences of their actions, politically, emotionally, ethically, in terms of the things they produce and what those things are in the world. So for you to bring up climate change is absolutely apt. Sure, we can say we're responsible about using soy-based inks or about LEED-certified buildings, but I think it's a bit bigger than actually things. It's it's about a mindset. It's about a cultural mindset. And I think it's about an educational mindset. Because what happens, and 
this is, I think, something I haven't thought about enough, but my guess is that everything, not everything, but a lot, but there's, there's something called force of personality. So you think about business, you think about these people in corporations, people who are sort of driving large capitalist enterprise, who see the opportunity to be Jeff Bezos, to make money, to scale up. Why is the word scale something that my students, when I taught in business school, saw as a positive thing? But I gave a lecture once and mentioned this, and a young man in the back row who was in law school said, but a scale is also the scales of justice, right? Why is it about this greedy amplification of more, more, more? To what degree does design participate in conferring authority on things to make them look richer and more expensive? Is that actually ethical? Probably not. And yet, designers are called upon to make the world a better place. So what does it mean to make the world a better place when you're a millennial and you're coming of age at a moment when to be an influencer is not necessarily to consider those socially beneficial to all conditions? So if we've got, you know, we've got these designers who are working in isolation, well, not in isolation, we, we have designers who are working on their own to produce work that is very close to their hearts and has meaning to them. We've then got these corporations who you, know, you um, refer to as wanting to scale up. And what strikes me is that there's such a chasm between the two of them. How do we reconcile that? I don't know how we reconcile that, but I think part of it is education. I once had a professor in graduate school who sat down in his dentist's chair and the dentist said to him, so Howard, how's commercial art? And Howard, my professor, looked up at the periodontist or dentist and said, so doc, how's dental hygiene? And it was this funny story about the fact that design was to architecture as, you know, nursing was to surgery, right? That there was always this sort of second in command role that design played because you didn't need to be certified to practice. Now, 20, 30 years later, design is being taught in business schools, it's being taught in engineering schools. It, it's an important part of larger commerce. And it's not clear that the people who have taken the word design into contemporary parlance in industry recognize its value and the complexity of its value, right? So we become exotic menials or we become, uh, you know, these kind of uh, like little elves working away in a workshop, making something perfect. I had a, a client who I subsequently fired a year ago get mad at me because I was thinking something through. And he said, you're overthinking this, Jessica. Stop being a designer. Stop being a perfectionist. And I thought, was that our reputation? Is that what it means to... You spend your life in design school, in art school, being told to strive for excellence. And then you get out in the world, you're put on a team co-creating with a bunch of engineers, and they tell you that you're overthinking something? Something's really wrong if that's how we're perceived. This goes back to what I was saying about um, you know, individual designers and these big corporations. I mean, the value, as you said, you know, the value is being able to have the freedom to produce good work. Well, hopefully good work, but the freedom to produce work. And when you are you know, um, surrounded by these co-creators, so to speak, who don't have, potentially have a vision or don't have the same vision, you know, what you get is this um, very bland um, output that has no um, soul 
so to speak, and no individuality to speak of, and conforms to a status quo. I think consensus is the death knell for any kind of artistic enterprise. That's the problem. That, to me, is in a nutshell the problem. So I will give you another example. Recently, I went to an online design conference and watched the creative director of a multinational corporation was presenting something that, in his view, epitomized the expression of empathy, big buzzword in corporate world, empathy in design. And it was bringing to market very quickly uh, a really unhealthy junk food product that was meant to be comforting to people at home during the pandemic. And not only was this thing essentially, you know, the Monsanto of, of junk food. I mean, it was basically like chemicals in a box. So he is paid an absolute exorbitant fortune being heralded on this call by 75 people who think that they should be genuflecting before his work. He talks about this as an expression of empathy. We're talking about junk food and chemicals, which is killing people. And then he shows the container and the box is the ugliest piece of shit I've ever seen, forgive my language, but it was really bad. That was for me the final nail in the coffin. I thought if that's what design has become, if in order to succeed in design that is related to commerce, we need to take stock of that kind of research, where is the ethical mandate? Where is the nutritional understanding of what is, it's a public health issue to introduce junk food that people are spending money on, stuck at home, not getting exercise, killing themselves five years earlier than they would anyway with really ugly graphic design on top of it. I mean, interesting what you just said, because I'm just trying to think, where's design coming into all of this? And he's the chief creative officer, right? So so where is design in all of this? Because what we have is, is corporate need to satisfy shareholders as opposed to producing, a, you know, one would expect them to be producing a product that has, you know, nutritional value. And if, you know, if you're a creative director or you have the responsibility at that level, there's no design. You know, all all they're doing is that this is not going to be a very inspiring conversation to uh, young aspiring designers uh, who want to believe that change is possible and can happen. It is possible and it can happen, but somebody's got to stand up to these people. Two other quick examples ab about this: uh, a former client who's a marketing person who started a podcast and did an episode on the future of design education. Now, what this person knows about design education, we could put in a thimble. I, who have spent 30 years in design education, I'm not doing a podcast on the future of design, but I'm far more equipped to do it as someone who, is, who has the pedigree and the principles and the degree and the experience in the academy because design is a free-for-all. Second example, I was on the phone with someone at a very large corporation, again, I'm not going to name the corporation, who mansplained to me for a good 25 minutes what design is. So he mansplained my career to me because he has been fed a gospel by his company about the value of design very much through the funnel of that company. And this is someone who went to business school, as did the marketing person. So, and I taught in a business school for three years, and I have nothing against business, but I, I feel like the mother bear in me feels enormously responsible as an elder in the design profession who's getting out of the design profession, 
looking at all of my students over the course of almost 30 years, and I want them to stand up for themselves. I'm not going to do it for them. I don't want, it's not appropriate for me to do it for them. I'm moving my practice into a slightly different zone, which I'm happy to talk about. But if we're going to talk about design, design is in crisis. It is at a crossroads. And as someone whose next book is on Ralph Waldo Emerson, who talked about the importance of self-reliance, I think we could all inject a little of that into our kit of parts and start to think pedagogically and culturally about instilling in our students and our young people the need to take this on because this is bullshit. It is bullshit that the legacy of Joseph Albers and of Massimo Vignelli and of Pentagram and of all the high priests of design and all the hard-won lessons since the war and Black Mountain College and Yale and all these people that came to America and started design and all the people in Europe who kept going after the war in design, we're going to be told how to practice our craft by co-creators in business? Sorry, not on my watch. There are a couple of points that um, we can pick up on. I think that... This is inspiring for young designers, in fact, because I think that there's opportunity for them to see, you know, to see what's going on. And, you know, you could say there's a re there could be a revolution brewing. There because, should be a revolution. Yeah, because, you know, the designers, these creative talents who are emerging from uh, schools around the world have the opportunity to stand up for their beliefs and make a stand for it. And it's not that that can't actually be useful for someone else. It's not that you have to be a fine artist in order for your work to resonate. And I think if we learned anything in this year where we can't co-create, obviously, easily because of the pandemic, and a year in which we're thinking about sharing the mic and the conversation with people that are not the usual suspects, it's time to really knock that cannon back and to really change some of these rules. Yeah. We've, we've talked about a number of things. Moving on to something that is more about you and maybe more inspiring than to others. I want to know what excites you about your work. Well, I've always been uh, someone who loves doing research. And I love the needle in a haystack quality of building a collection, going through someone else's collection, finding something. All of my books have really been about assembling a kit of parts around an idea and testing an idea, testing a methodology, testing a theory by collecting evidence. And I think in many ways, design and visual culture is about looking at visual evidence and reconstituting it in your own mind, it, like a puzzle, like, 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 a, like a tangram that has a million different solutions, but it's the same pieces. And so I can look back at my career and see very strong through lines of what interested me. I was always interested in people. You know, I had a very brief life as an actress before I became a designer. And the thing that I loved most about being an actress was trying on different clothes, playing different parts, inhabiting different personas. And I think as a graphic designer, my work always began with photography. I loved the theatricality of posters and big type. And I loved telling stories editorially with sequencing pictures and, and words in books and magazines. And I think all of that, I look back, I think there was a really strong theatrical component in that. But at some point, it always came back to some humanism for me. It always came back to my book on scrapbooks, which is about people keeping these remarkably detailed records of their lives visually, even though they weren't visual people. My book on uh, design, the invention of desire, was illustrated by a series of paintings I was making of stem cells with this idea that at a microscopic level, we all look alike. And, and I was fascinated by the fact that these images were at once abstract forms, but remarkably 
scientific in terms of a kind of clarity and certainty that are not at all abstract. And my most recent book, Face, was an attempt to try to chronicle and catalog the way we measure the human face. It's emotional, it's racial, it's political, it's gendered, it's uh, ageist. uh, And globally, these are issues that long preceded us and will long outlive us. The fact that I am now painting faces, that I'm painting portraits, that I'm working from photographs, uh, and I'm working with a very complicated collection because it is a medical collection. It's a medical archive of before and after pictures of patients who did not give their consent. And one of my closest friends here at Yale, where I'm speaking to you from today, is a, is a medical ethicist. And she is with me in my head every time I paint these things because she's quite opposed to this work. She thinks these people, you know, it's what's called the medical gaze. It's one is not, these people are not alive any longer to give their consent. And yet I keep coming back to them because I'm really interested in the universality of, of expressions of pain and struggle. I'm interested in how historical photography is revived and shifts into a different zone when it's taken out of a black and white photograph and it becomes paint on canvas, pigment on canvas. So I have formal, what what excites me, Sean, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I think what excites me is as, as disconnected as some of these experiments seem, I spend a lot of time looking for through lines between them and I'm starting to find some and they really go back very many years. Uh, and so now what excites me is is trying to not say no to the paintings because there may be an ethical quandary at the core of their existence, but to try to use those questions brought about by the ethics of appropriation, really. I mean, designers and artists work with found images all the time. What, who, who gives you license? What gives you the right to work with material? And when you're editing, are you editing someone else's story? And when you're collecting, are you accessing something that is really not accessible to you? And I think those questions are important to me and they keep me going. And so I, I, I'm really, I'm kind of excited about these paintings. I want to come back to that because I want to talk about um, your um, new book, Faces. But I want to ask you a little bit about luxury first, if I may, because this is the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. So I can't not mentioned luxury. You can't let me off the hook. <laughs> no. Um, but we've been talking about design and talking about corporations and talking about ethics and responsibility. And this obviously f- uh, feeds into your new project, as, as uh, Faces, as you've just mentioned. But we have uh, a collective responsibility in the way we advertise and communicate and communicate through design. And I just wondered what you thought about design communicating luxury today. I thought you were going to ask me about whether the face was a form of luxury, because I think it is. I am. <laughs> Actually, you are. That's the next, the next yeah. question. Um, well, let me answer the design question first, which is that in this moment, we're taping this in the early spring, late winter of 2021. I think the question, uh, given the Black Lives Matter movement and its important lessons to all of us, is that the question of how we equate excellence in design, a form of luxury, needs to be reexamined. Because what happens with the pursuit of excellence in design is that these are the things that are being rewarded and awarded, which means that they get copied, which means that they proliferate. And so they kind of metastasize from the wrong place. And what we're starting to find, I mean, everywhere from 
artist colonies, to corporations, to the academy, to the retail world, is that the laws don't apply. We cannot generalize. We cannot assume. We cannot copy. We cannot retrofit. We can't reverse engineer this anymore. And I think that this means, you know, in the United States, Confederate statues are toppled and people say, yes, but it's a teaching point. What about history? Well, you could say the same thing about people who won great medals for their design work, right? It's a lot of old white people and it's time to really change that conversation. So that means new vocabularies, new principles, new laws and bylaws. I mean, there are people who are saying that grid systems are fascist, uh, you know, the things left over from a different time when there was only one way to lay out a book or a poster. So it's, a, and again, another revolution I think is being sparked by new ways of looking at luxury that do not conform to previously understood uh, and previously agreed upon uh, examples of what constitutes excellence. We still need to strive for excellence is the problem. We just need to redefine what excellence is. And I think in that sense, there's probably a really strong through line to luxury. There are two things that um, spring to mind. One is that um, I'm sure you've noticed over the past probably five years odd, um, all the big luxury brands have changed their logos where they were once very distinct um, in the use of font, the layout, etc. They are now verging on being the same, so with no distinct character anymore. And I think that feeds up the way in which the products are produced because they are becoming more and more streamlined or similar. The other thing was I had a, I was having a conversation with a colleague in South Africa the um, yesterday, in fact, and we were talking about decolonizing luxury because, you know, he's from Africa and, you know, luxury has been defined by the Europeans. And I think those are two really interesting things. One is that we are kind of fighting the individuality, which is what we've been talking about, in fact, for this whole conversation so far. But then also, how do we bring in this, you know, this uh, um, design excellence when there are so many issues political issues, um, issues around capitalism, um, issues around, you know, the, the decolonization that I said, how do, you know, how do we kind of find a balance between all of these things and get to the happy medium? Right. And then add into that, what has upset the apple cart in terms of the influencer world, right? And people who are paid exorbitant amounts of money to just shill for other people or shill for themselves or shill about themselves. Uh, I mean, you have said this to me in the past, and I think maybe it bears bringing up at this point in our conversation, Sean, which is the degree to which a very pure definition of luxury outside of brand, outside of capital, is scarcity, is, is to really consider the value proposition of that which is special. And on that score, the only truly unique thing you have is your face. Right? So even an identical twin is not the same as the other identical twin. And yet, again, you come back to the circularity of people wanting to look like Kim Kardashian or look like whoever is the latest cool person on whatever latest cool platform is there. And I find myself really shell-shocked by that environment, that the social media constant, the propeller that propels it forward at any given point 
feels at once completely tautological, just turning on itself, and meaningless because of that, right? And so it doesn't actually like move you forward. It's the wheels are turning, but they're turning in the same direction. And you're not actually making any progress. Um, there, there's some really a marvelous people who are writing about this right now who are not me and who are much younger. But I think that there's a world of young journalists and novelists who are really looking at the degree to which social media has become a kind of religion. And uh, it's just funny to me that the very thing through which you can be yourself, which is I have my own X platform on whatever X site, adheres to and conforms to such radical conformism that it ceases to ever demonstrate its capacity for the individuality. So it's this really strange, ironic, tension-filled abyss of mediocrity at the mm. end of the day. I was wondering if you thought that luxury then can be exemplified um, or only if luxury is only exemplified through a tangible object, or can we have uh, or can we create luxury without having that physical artifact? I mean, you were talking about the face and people looking to mimic um, kind of celebrities that they aspire to be or be like. And the other the other way of, of this, there's a, a new thing. I'm going to get this wrong, but it's got the word fungible and token in it. You want to, so, so last week at auction, somebody auctioned off for a lot of money the cat that looked like a pop tart with the rainbow steam coming out. Right. So people are starting to trade in things like Bitcoin on the internet, galleries. People are buying things that through their very, and they're not beautiful. They're not even real. They're, you know, animated French fries and they're all kinds of strange sketches. But the fact is that you're the only person who owns it or has access to it, or there's a QR code, right? So how do you square access to a special thing in a world where accessibility, and I don't just mean people of color, I mean people who are disabled, people who are economically disenfranchised. Like, how is it possible that we can reward people with luxury at the expense of other people's scarcity? That to me seems like a very troubled zone to be in. And it doesn't, it doesn't imply better design either. Like, where's design in that conversation? There's an article in The Guardian yesterday that says, when is a meme worth $600,000 when technology has created a unique version that can't be owned by anyone else? And these are, uh, you know, it's crypto art and the NFTs you referred to. I mean, we're kind of entering in this completely new... Um, unexplored territory where people are spending millions and millions um, of dollars on stuff that they can't physically hold. Right. It, it And it feels like it comes out of the gamer world to me a little bit. Like it has that, you know, I, I am, it only exists on a screen. If I don't have a screen, it doesn't exist. If a tree falls in the forest, right. The, it's a kind of a virtual alt universe of value that I think may be generational, may not be, may be gendered, it may not be. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to imagine that's going to mean that the desire for a product bag is ever going to go away, but it's another way to e equivocate and to sort of evaluate what, what value and scarcity and longing and luxury all have in common. Going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, influences, and um, I referred to the kind of aspiration of people to kind of be like or look like 
others um when you know i one would think you know if you're thinking about luxury that luxury is scarcity you know most people are saying that their luxury now is time because they don't have that much time you know it could be time to lay in in the morning time with the kids um time to think time you know to do go for a walk uh not physical things that they're buying i'm not saying that's always the case because you know a lot of the time it is about what you buy it's having that object but if luxury is about scarcity or rarity and you refer to the face i mean that the face is you know it is the luxury because you're not looking to um emulate somebody else's unless you're having lots of plastic surgery of course <laughs> Right, but even there, people have plastic surgery to return to a previous version of themselves, right? I mean, that's the, I think, the, the, the kind of game of the Real Housewives franchise is that these women partake in a visual model that is not so much informed by each other, but the idea that they can dress and live as they did 20 years earlier. Um maybe that's a bad example, but th that's the one that springs to mind. And I, I think that um, uh, plastic surgery is an interesting question because it gets at how we value beauty and is it always about youth? Uh, it's it, I'll tell you one thing that I may have mentioned this already, so forgive me if I did, but the, the one of the more interesting things to come out of my uh, research was that across all cultures, uh, beauty is identified by virtue of symmetry. So people like... Asian cultures, African cultures, Western cultures, Caribbean cultures. Um, this is this is not about age. This is not about race. This is about a metric that is the same thing. It's the same principle upon which Brunelleschi designed his domes, right? That the eye naturally gravitates to something that has to do with essential bilateral symmetry. And yet the cover of my book I did uh, is a flipped baby. It's a baby cut in half flipped, which is a little too symmetrical. And so it's this sort of slippage between idealization and too much perfection that leads you to this this discomforting awareness of what it is you're actually aspiring to. But I thought that in terms of beauty, and beauty is, I think, luxury's relationship to beauty is a curious one because you're getting into levels of taste. And this comes back to design how well everybody thinks they're a designer now and everybody thinks they have great taste, right? And that's really a very subjective evaluation. When I was a student, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, we were only expected to use certain typefaces. We were only expected to use certain papers. We were expected to kind of um, vilify anything that represented uh, a detour from those basic paradigms. And nothing could be further than the truth from the truth right now, which is, I think, fantastic, even though rules need to apply in design education. But I think when you get people with who went to business school who self-identify as design experts, that's a bridge too far. I mean, you know, design is everywhere. You know, forms are designed, design things are designed. You know, systems, processes, strategies, all those things are designed. Willem Flusser wrote a book on on design, and you know, design is a verb. Design is a noun. Design is uh, it's a catch-all. And I think. Um, you know, a member of my family who shall remain nameless when she found out I was painting said, oh, that's nice. We all need a creative outlet. And I thought, I've been painting full time for a couple of years now. This is not like me making hanging macrame plants on Sunday afternoons. Like this is serious, right? 
But on another level, she's right, which is that everybody wants to think they're creative. And so if you are in a middle management job in some kind of large company and you are moving widgets from right to left all day long, the idea that language would enter your orbit that lets you feel that you're actually producing something, fantastic, except you're not. You're not. And I've gotten myself into trouble. I went to Twitter once, to Twitter headquarters in San Francisco, and I said to the head of design, do you ever miss making things? And he got really mad at me. He said, I make things every day. And I thought, yes, but do you? (laughs) I sound like such a crank, Sean. But on some level, I'm kind of right about this, right? Kind of right about this. No, and I think that's, you know, creativity is, um, you know, it's... It's an odd thing because I think everybody should have a creative outlet. People should kind of make things or do things that with their, you know, there's nothing like doing something with your hands um, and being able to kind of see the result. It's very different to, you know, to doing something on a screen. Well, you and I lived that together. You came to Yale with me uh, when I was teaching at the business school and we did a project. This was really all credit to you. Uh, where the students made models of a retail space and they made them in miniature in shoeboxes. And then we cut holes in the shoeboxes and took iPhone photographs through the shoeboxes, thus creating the illusion that we had made full-scale models. And these were not visual students. There were some architects in the class. It was one of the more exciting things I did. It might have been the most exciting thing I did the three years I taught at Yale because We broke down into its component parts very simple methods by which anybody with a knife and a shoebox could make a thing. And we watched them looking and looking closely. And that kind of scrutiny and observation lies at the core of all design. And I think that um, it's a wonderful lecture that you can find online of Natasha Jen, the pentagram partner in New York, gave a famous talk called Design Thinking is Bullshit. And she makes the excellent point that the reason that design thinking will never be designed is that it's missing the component of critique. I would argue the other really big missing component is close looking. And you don't do close looking if you're sitting in Zoom meetings all day doing budgets and looking at spreadsheets. But you do close looking if you're making a model and looking through the keyhole of something you put in a shoebox. The students reviewed it later, and some of them were scathing and angry and disappointed and thought that it was a waste of time. And I found it really revealing about the difference between what I said at the beginning of this conversation, those who make things and learn by doing and develop a humility and an understanding of craft and production and scale by virtue of being part of that scaled up operation, being part of the operation itself, and those who just look and pontificate and get paid a lot of money to do it, that's not design. No. And, I mean, not to underestimate the, you know, the craft and the skill that some people do have and implement when they are working with, you know, software or CAD or whatever it might be. But I still find that, you know, like you've said, the most creative are those who can do both. Yes. You know, it's not one or the other. And I have a lot of respect and admiration for people who can do spreadsheets and do math and do... Uh, understand supply chains and understand the metrics that drive the world. I, I'm I'm in awe of these people, but I don't, you know, say on Friday afternoon I'm going to be a politician and end up at the UN on Monday, right? So the idea that you could take a weekend class in design thinking and suddenly become, you know, imagine yourself the next Picasso is beyond the pale, just beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get back to faces because I've been thinking about this while we've been chatting and thinking now about plastic surgery. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I'm older than you, so we can have that conversation. Plastic surgery in um, Korea is a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They have the most amazing plastic surgeons. And if I ever had anything done, you know, that would be that would be the kind of destination of choice because they are so meticulous. But what interests me is that it's not subtle, their plastic surgery. It's more inclined to look Western. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful video online somewhere of, of a, I, I watched when I was working on Face, uh, the book, and also when I do my paintings, I, I, this is an f- embarrassing but true statement. I, I actually have watched a lot of makeup vi- tutorials because I do a lot of pre, a lot of sketching on my iPad and understanding luminosity and color, working from photographs. It's a, bit, a very important evolutionary step for me to understand the the dimensionality of the cheekbone, for example. So, be that as it may, I, I watch these things, and someone sent me uh, a video that. It shows an Asian woman being turned into Taylor Swift that you would swear at the end it's Taylor Swift. This is She's neither blonde nor Caucasian. And it's an absolute, I mean, perfect, perfect rendition of Taylor Swift. Uh, but the, I think one of the things that uh, is maybe embedded in your comment about Asian plastic surgery is the westernization of the face uh, as a kind of, uh, there's a, strange new television series airing in America called Bling Empire. Bling Empire is about, the. it's sort of inspired by Crazy Rich Asians. It's about these unbelievably wealthy Asian uh, people living in Los Angeles. And some of them are exquisite to look at. Uh, Most of them are exquisite to look at. But a few of them have a very strange look about them. And I realized it must have been plastic surgery because their cheeks are, it's a very sort of chipmunk-like thing where they make give them high cheekbones and then they they round out because the problem is that nothing it's gravity is not uh divorced from what you do with your face so you can't do something on tuesday and a year later find it necessarily in the same place tell us about the luxury of the face since we're talking about plastic surgery in the face and you've been painting faces of all sorts and talking about faces of all sorts um, for a while tell us about the luxury of the face what is that have I just made that up? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, no, I love it. I, I, um, well, there's the question that only you have what you have, and and DNA, you know, can't lie. If your father had a receding hairline, you're going to have it too, and you can fix those things if one wants to. But the truth is, some of it is genetics, some of it is genetic predisposition, some of it is culture and environment, just like anything. But I think what's interesting, or what has become interesting to me, is as individualized as we are, we share universal truths. You know, sadness, fear. These paintings I'm working on have to do with people who knew they were ill. And there's a sense of desperation in their eyes or there's a sense of sadness or tra- there's a, there's something tragic about them that we all share even though we are not them. And it's it's finding that which is universal and that which is unique. It's understanding the universality of the gaze of the, that a look of desperation is a look of desperation is a look of desperation. That That to me... It's just like painting a stem cell that could be your spleen or be my spleen. Right? Like I'm interested in that which binds us and doesn't tear us apart. Um, but I think also we think we know faces because we look at our own in the mirror every day, and we really don't. So there's enormous studies that have been made over the years about what constitutes a reliable political figure. 
or an actress. There's something I learned um, that politicians often will be photographed at a three-quarter gaze like this, right? Looking over one shoulder. Listeners, you can't see me doing this, but I'm I'm modeling it for Sean right now. Um, and um, it's called, and, and Susan Sontag called it the gaze that soars, which was like, it's like, it looks like your eyes are about to take off on a landing strip. So there's all kinds of tropes and systems and methods that we fixate on like roadmaps, right? So I can look at a map of Ireland and a map of Idaho and they're two very different places, but a road is designated the same way. Same with the lines on your palm, same with your eyebrows. And yet we think we know, we don't know, right? And so there's something between uh, wanting to cement yourself in the larger trajectory of humankind and wanting to preserve the individuality wanting to preserve the individuality that is only you. And I think somewhere in there, there may be something about luxury that's interesting. Because if it didn't conform to something you thought you knew, you wouldn't be attracted to it. And then that which makes it completely idiosyncratic and different is what draws you in. And it's that tension between all and one, between universal and unique, that I find fascinating. The, the subject matter of your, um, of your new portraits... Um, is really interesting. You were talking about people with medical concerns. How do you take something that's quite a difficult subject? You've spoken also about the ethical issues. How do you take a difficult subject like someone who is not alive, who can't speak for themselves? How do you preserve that, um, the true essence of the purple? Because that is. That is such a good question, and I don't have an answer. I can just tell you that I think about it all the time. So for you know, for many, many years, longer than I can count, I come from a family of collectors. We were always going to flea markets long before eBay. We were always, everyone had something, and I always was interested in vernacular photographs and found photographs, and I always loved the mystery of not knowing who people were. And at some point, I became, I was sort of zeroing in on passport pictures. So photographs that were portraits that were taken for a specific area, uh, reason taken for a specific reason, but had for whatever reason seceded from their point of origin. So they'd fallen off the passport and they were, you know, in a bin somewhere in a flea market. Wondering who these people were, looking at their hairstyles, trying to place them in history. And so I get to this collection. So this is an orphan collection, meaning that very few people know that has have seen it. It's 15,000 negatives taken over the course of maybe 20 years uh, that were diagnostic pictures. So the, the physician wanted to see looking at someone who might have had a, a brain abnormality, did their eyes not focus in the same direction? Or was the protrusion on a nerve meant that their neck was cocked to one side? So what happens to me when I make these paintings is, first of all, I, I'm a great believer, because all my books have had a really strong historical component. I'm a great believer in bringing things out of the archive and sharing them with the world and making stories more universal and publicly accessible. But secondly, I think what interested me was at first, I thought rescuing them, reviving them, re, uh, kind of reinterpreting these faces and giving them the kind of grace and dignity they were due, which required some really tough conversations with myself. Was I aestheticizing them? Was I exoticizing history? If somebody had a protrusion on one side of their head, do I crop it so you can't see it? Because to, to make it there is to is othering. And I have a whole chapter in my book on othering. But to get rid of it is to aestheticize it and to edit it. Well, 30 years as a graphic designer has taught me something about composition, editing, cropping, understanding how you tell a story through narrative. 
This is a whole new level of understanding how to go from black and white to color has been really humbling for me. Um, and as I say, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. But uh, many of the ethicists I've spoken to felt that even though it's a tricky subject, I shouldn't walk away from it. And I have walked away from it several times and I always come back to it. So there's a second collection I'm doing. I've been making paintings from, from television. So I make paintings of newscasters, Anderson Cooper, and famous people on TV because the TV screen, I always paint my portraits not in portrait mode, but in landscape mode. And so I'm interested in the frame, in the, in the proportion of the television screen frame. And also when you shoot with your iPhone onto a, um, a diode, you know, a, a, you're, it's pixels against pixels and you get a funny kind of matrix. And I'm interested in how the color gets um, a little bit aberrant. But that's not what, that, those are much easier to do because those people are still alive. They haven't given permission. Anderson Cooper didn't give me permission to paint him, but he's a public figure, right? These patients were not public figures. But now we live in the age of Instagram and archive.org and you can get anything online and everything's on Pinterest. And Sometimes I've painted these portraits and I've swapped out their eyes for someone else's eyes, thinking I was disguising their identity in some way. Other times I've flipped the photograph so that it's, they're, they're actually, it's backwards. Uh, there's, there's, I'm trying many different things, in, including many different ways of painting them and, and also painting them huge. So it, it's an ongoing investigation that is um, hard and tricky, and I'm learning a lot about myself, and I'm learning a lot about painting, and uh, again, the through line, which I've been, I spoke about at the beginning of our conversation today, is that I, I've always been a collector, and I've always been interested in photographs, and I always, so I always start from photographs. So they start with, I paint on top of the photograph, and then I get rid of the photograph, and then I keep going. I was just thinking about the journey. And this is a luxury journey for you, isn't it? In what way is it a luxury journey for me? Well, just thinking about where you've started and this, I mean, I think of luxury as a journey. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking that, you know, all the things that you were doing in thinking about how you paint these portraits, how you deal with the personalities, even though they're not alive, um, how you deal with the kind of the subtleties of color because they were black and white, you know, these nuances of of personality, whether you change them, you don't ch change them. And I was just thinking that journey is a kind of a journey of luxury because only you are doing it. Right. That's so interesting. You know, I also think inversely, conversely, I've always been drawn to things that I couldn't possibly experience. So when I was a young designer, I was obsessed with war diaries because I wasn't, I wasn't going to go into battle. I wasn't a man and I wasn't a soldier. I wasn't living during a wartime. I wasn't going to be drafted. But I was interested in stories of scarcity and trouble and torture and tragedy. Was it schadenfreude? Was I looking to feel better about myself? I think I wanted to feel something. I wanted to understand something that wasn't consensus-based. That was I, I always struggled against design's perfection, design's patina. I always, in my spare time, was looking for something more rigorous, more gestural, more human. And so, again, here I am 30 years later after collecting those war diaries, looking at something that's about privacy and publicity, looking at something that's about black and white and color, scale and photography, pigment and digital. I think those binary poles 
re- are really helpful to an artist or to a designer. Like, you, you know, you write, a, you write a novel, it's got to have conflict, and then it has denouement. Like, I, there has to be something you can't, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be someone who's just going to paint flowers, I don't think. But I suppose if I did paint flowers, I'd find some tension in them. I was going to say what amazing flowers they'd be. Oh, you're very kind. I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look at flower arranging videos on YouTube first. Yeah, petals and... Um... I mean, that's an art in itself, isn't it? It is. We're going to uh, wrap up soon. I mean, even though, I mean, I could, as you know, well, we do talk, you know, for hours. <laughs> I'll come then, back anytime. Thank yeah, you. Uh, but I wanted to, we, we, we touched a little bit on environmental issues and sustainability. And I wanted to ask you about sustainability and sustainable practice um, and its relationship to luxury and what you thought that might be. Uh, well, as a collector and harvester of old things and reusing them, uh, I I love the idea that luxury has embedded into it a kind of recycling, kind of upcycling. But also, I, I think particularly coming out of design, where designers so often I self-identify as arbiters of the future, that they look at the past and at history, social history, um, physical history, material culture history as a kind of been there, done that nostalgia trap. And I've written, I wrote about this earlier this year uh, as part of my research on Ralph Aldo Emerson, but I think one of the things you can do in your studio or in your life is to revisit what you've got and reconstitute it in some way. So when my children were young, on rainy days, when I was snowy days, I was going out of my mind, we'd often clean out their closets and they'd always find a toy at the back of the closet they forgot they had and Hours of fun would ensue. And I, I sometimes, I, I know artists that do that. You know, you're having a tough day in the studio. You, you don't have any ideas. You clean out some drawers. I think there is, particularly in the pandemic, you said that time is a luxury. Some people think this is more me time than they've ever wanted in their lives. But I think to the degree that we have less peripatetic schedules right now, the idea of revisiting what you've got and kind of eliciting from it, excavating something of value is a kind of pursuit of luxury that requires no additional expenditure. Uh, Perhaps a small expenditure of your own time, but certainly not of your limited resources. And it's, there's something really marvelous about finding that forgotten thing, old letters, old correspondence, old things you meant to read. And then if that doesn't work, you go doing time travel on the internet and go look at some great collection online. I've done that. I've spent snowstorms looking at the Library of Congress and just looking at posters and being so delighted. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very, very good at being by myself finding entertainment like this. And I think one can. I think there's a sort of less is more lesson in this. Like you think you need more, bigger, better things, but maybe in your own backyard, you've got them already. Do you then think us encouraging consumption, or do you think encouraging consumption creates a west- wasteful mentality in people? Yes. <laughs> I thought you might say that. But then how... It's not that we don't want new things. I mean, I mean, look at all the things we miss this year. I miss getting on a plane and coming to see you. I miss my friends. I miss... I miss some really basic things, like shopping would be nice. You know, it'd be really nice to... It'd be nice to be able to cook more interesting things and go to markets. and It's all sorts of things we miss. But it's not necessarily I, I guess luxury maybe isn't necessarily an always an additive proposition it might be about a kind of reassembly of that kit of parts so what is your luxury uh, this last hour of my time with you is my luxury uh what is my luxury 
Well, I think one definition I have for myself for luxury is discovering new things I didn't know I enjoyed. And this would be as little as, I spent my whole life not liking olives. Now I love olives. And my son too, my son and I, we were both like, what, what, what happened that for so many years we did, we love olives. So now we're like, we become an olive eating family. Another is, I've never read fiction. And painting while listening to books on tape, fiction, is a great way to paint. Because your mind goes to all these different places. And I love listening to people doing accents. And I, I, I do really high-end, good, audible stuff because I really want to listen to Jeremy Irons reading to me and not just some um, anybody. So it's worth putting in the extra $5 a month to do that. So these have become forms of luxury, like slowing down to realize what you've got and to find some new thing. I always chastise myself for not being better read around fiction. And now I'm working my way through Virginia Woolf and Doris Lessing and Lawrence Durrell. And I'm doing all these classical books that I always wanted to read and never had time to sit and read the Alexandria Quartets, but to listen to it on table, I'm painting. Maybe this is what old age is. I don't know. I'm I'm getting older. Maybe I, I never thought that that this would be what I would be doing, but I think that there's there's luxury to be had in discovering something you didn't know you loved that's right under your feet. Doesn't I don't need other people for that, right? I, it's not that I don't miss other people, and I long to be vaccinated. But but I think if you can find something that gives you great pleasure and you don't need to be dependent on your company, on your boss, on your parents, on your partner, that's that's where it's at. Jessica Halfand. Amazing chatting to you as always. Thank you so much for joining us. A huge pleasure as always. And next time I hope we do it in person. As do I. Thank you, Jessica. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.